right, church family, let's open our Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 3 in the New Testament. 1 Peter, if you need a Bible this morning, you can raise one, your hand and we'll, we'll, we'll share a Bible we keep in the back just for that purpose. And if you don't own a Bible, then you keep this one, write your name in it, let it be a gift from our church family to you. 1 Peter chapter 3, almost near the end of your Bible. There is a note page as well in your bulletin, if you wouldn't mind grabbing a hold of that. Uh, that may be helpful along the way. The story is told about a humorous conversation that unfolded between two guys who did not know each other, and so they were just kind of getting acquainted. And one asks the other, so are you a Protestant or are you Catholic? Well, I'm Protestant, the other fellow said. Well, me too. What, what flavor? He says, well, I'm Baptist. Well, me too, the guy answered, pleased. Northern Baptist or Southern Baptist? Northern Baptist, he replied. Me too. So both began to feel the bonds of friendship were just starting to be forged. And So are you part of the Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1879? Or are you part of the Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912? And he replied, Northern Conservative Fundamentalist Baptist Great Lakes Region Council of 1912. The other guy shouted, Die, heretic! And left. (laughs) Oh, man. I know that's silly. That's silly. You know, we laugh um, at the absurdity of that fictional exchange. But you know what, brothers and sisters, it might be that it's a little bit of an uneasy laugh if we're completely honest and we've had much time in the church. Because we know that just under the surface of this humor, there lies some truth. Namely, that the church of the Lord Jesus is often not the beautiful, united in oneness reflection of Jesus that he prayed for on the eve of going to the cross for us. Would you agree with that? It isn't always like this. John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23. On the night before Jesus was crucified, he prays a prayer uh, with his disciples there present. They hear this prayer. Uh, he prays for himself in this prayer. He prays for those uh, who are who have been with him for the last three and a half years. And in this prayer, he prays for you and me. And as part of the prayer where he's praying for you and for me, he prays in John 17, 22, Father, may they be one as we are one. I in them and you in me, may they be brought to complete unity to let the world know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. And oh, brothers and sisters, would that it could be so, that this would be us. Amen? Amen. Unity and oneness as a church family are in our sights this morning as we bring our summer study series uh, to a close today. And I have mentioned to you that we would be doing that. Today's the last uh, in this series. If you've not been with us, we have been hanging out for many, many weeks through the summer with the one another passages that the Holy Spirit has left to us on the pages of the New Testament. On the backside of that little note page that you pulled out of your bulletin, 
there are no less than 40 of these one another admonitions in the New Testament. As, uh, and, and each one of these fits into something that we have been calling one anotherism. Uh, it's the phrase we've kind of coined for our, our times together. And, and it speaks about an atmosphere, a, a life within the church of thinking about one another. And so we've just labeled it one anotherism as opposed to individualism. And these one anothers fit together like fabric in, a, in an amazing quilt, the patches in an amazing quilt, a church family that is, is healthy with these, these relationships that are marked by the one another's. Individually, collectively, consistently, and practically, uh, part of a church that is living out Jesus' prayer in John 17. Unity and oneness. It's how we make Jesus real. We've been talking about this for 13 weeks. How do we make Jesus real? We make him real by living out the one another's of Scripture. As I say today, we wrap up our series and we do so with one more one another that the Holy Spirit delivers to us through the pen of the Apostle Peter. That's why your Bible is now open to 1 Peter chapter 3. We're going to be looking at verses 8 and 9. Are you there with me? Okay. Finally, Peter writes, finally, interesting word in view of our series coming to a close, right? Finally, all of you live in, what's the next word? Harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. This one another, in effect, takes the other 39 one another's on your note page and kind of gathers them all together into this one broad, far-reaching, all-inclusive one another. Every other one another in our list of 40 could find a home really under the roof of this, live in harmony with one another. Because this is about as clear a call to relational unity and oneness as we could hope to find anywhere in Scripture. When Jesus prayed his prayer to the Father on the eve of the cross, and he said, Father, may they be one as we are one, so that an unbelieving world will know that you sent me to it, he could just as easily have prayed in his prayer, Father, may they live in, say it, harmony with one another so that the world will know that you sent me and that I'm the real deal. May they live in harmony. From where I sit, this is the perfect one another to wrap up our summer series with. The word harmony in verse 8 is like many of the other words that we have looked at over these weeks together. In the original Greek text, it's, it's a compound word. And it's, it's the word homophron. It's a compound word, and what that means is it's, it's, it's two Greek words that have, been, that have separate meanings, and then they are brought together, kind of squeezed together to make a brand new word, and that's what we have here. Peter takes the word Hamas, 
meaning one or the same or like or, or united, Hamas, and he combines it with the word freen, meaning mind or thinking or, or understanding. And the end result is homophron, meaning to be like-minded, to be united in our understanding, united in our thinking. Now, to put this in 21st century English terms, if, if Peter were, were writing this today, he might well have said, be on the same page with one another in your thinking about what really matters, what's really important. Be in common pursuit of the same goals in this thing called life in Jesus. Be thinking the same way. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Now, like we always try to do, we want to understand this exhortation from the Holy Spirit in its context. Why does Peter give this exhortation right here? where he does, what prompts him, what's, what's the context. It's not a verse, this is, 1 Peter 3, 8, it's not just hanging out there all by itself, it's part of something bigger. So what is that? Well, if you were with us last time and you, you were here to share with us the, the one another called show hospitality to one another, which comes out of 1 Peter 4 and verse 9, you remember from last time that when Peter writes this letter, of First Peter, he is writing it to Christians, both Jewish Christians and non-Jewish Christians, who are being persecuted for their faith. So if you were here last time, this, this will be just a slight bit of review. These Christians are being persecuted and scattered all over the Mediterranean world. And so in the opening verse of the letter, if you go back to chapter 1 for just a moment, Peter says this in chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to God's elect... Strangers in the world scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And so Peter writes this letter to these brothers and sisters who are being persecuted for loving Jesus. And his intent is to encourage them in this letter and and call them to hold on to their faith in Jesus, to stand their ground and, and keep going hard after him and not give up on him. He's kind of like a father urging his his spiritual children along. In chapter 2, if you go to chapter 2 and you find verse 11, he says this. He says, Dear friends, and you can just sense the affectionate tone of his heart. Dear friends, I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world for following Jesus, you're a stranger in this world. I urge you to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. And then verse 12 Live such good lives. And by that he means lives that reflect the character of Jesus. Live such good lives among the pagans, among the unbelieving world that you live in, that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. In other words, what is Peter saying? He's saying the unbelievers and the skeptics concerning Jesus will see you living out your faith in Jesus, really doing all of these one another so conspicuously that their hearts will be changed not only towards you, but more importantly, they'll be changed towards Jesus. And they will become followers of him and ultimately bring glory to God because they have changed their opinion of Jesus. 
because they've seen you living Jesus out conspicuously. Live out the Jesus life so clearly and visibly that those who are presently hostile towards you and persecuting you will be among those who reverse their opinion about Jesus and they end up praising Jesus when he comes back, when he returns. And so really verse 12 is going to become the why for everything else that Peter says from here to the end of the letter. This is the why. Then to put intensely practical legs to his exhortation in verse 12, Peter immediately turns his attention to addressing several of the relationships that these persecuted Christians have, and he tells them what these relationships should look like so that those hostile to Jesus will have a change of heart towards Jesus and towards them. Although for the sake of time we won't be able to read all of the verses, I would urge you to come back later, maybe in your quiet times this week, and and maybe pick up these passages out of 1 Peter 2 and 3. But in 1 Peter uh, 2.13 to 17, Peter calls his readers to be ver- the very best citizens, first of all, that they can possibly be. This is the first relationship, where he says, where, where an unbelieving world is going to see you. You see, Christians in Peter's day were being falsely accused of trying to subvert the Roman government. They were being accused of, of being opposed to the emperor and, and not wanting to do anything with the Roman government, and so they were being persecuted for this. And so Peter calls these Christians to respect the government, respect the leaders of the government, and obey the laws. Don't reinforce false for, for perceptions. Be great citizens. Why? Why would we be, be great citizens? For Jesus' sake. To put Jesus on display before the world that doesn't know him. Be the very best citizens you know how to be. That's a good reminder, isn't it? That's a good challenge to you and me today. In verses 18 to 25, he focuses on Christian slaves and he calls them to be the best workers for their masters that they can possibly be. It's the second relationship he takes up. There were millions of slaves in Peter's day and many were coming to faith in Jesus. Peter says, even if your master is a cruel tyrant and, and you suffer at his, t- at his hand, you be the very best worker for him that you know how to be. Your real master is Jesus, so serve as if Jesus were your boss, and, and in doing that, you will honor him. And by doing that, you may change the opinions that others have about Christians and about Jesus. Let them talk about you being a great worker. In our day, we would say, let them talk about you being a great employee. The Christian community ought to have a reputation for being what? The very best workers, right? Why? Why, brothers and sisters, should we have that reputation? Because it reflects on Jesus, right? It it, it says something about Jesus to a world that doesn't know Jesus. And, and then in chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, Peter addresses yet another relationship, a third relationship. And, and which one is this one? This is husbands and wives, isn't it? The marriage relationship. He calls these Christians to live out their marriage relationship with each other in such a way that their devotion to Jesus translates to mutual love and respect for one another that, again, will be so conspicuous that marriages without Jesus will be compelled to want Jesus. 
Live as husbands and wives together so consistently that the unchurched around you will say, I want a marriage like you have. What, what do you have that makes your marriage what it is? Live such good lives among the unbelieving that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Now, having isolated these three places where Jesus can shine out of our lives, our roles as citizens, as great workers, employees, bosses, and in our marriages, having isolated those three areas of relationship, Peter just throws the door wide open in verse 8 of chapter 3, and he says, finally, all of you, not just some of you, not, not just some of you, but all of you who know Jesus as Lord and Savior in your life live in what? Harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Be compassionate and humble. And do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing. Because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. So, so. Brothers and sisters, this is the context into which the Holy Spirit sets our last all-encompassing kind of catch-all one another. Church family, if we do this one one another, we will not only be answering Jesus' prayer out of John 17, but we will make it impossible for those who are critical of Jesus those who are skeptical of Jesus, those who are hostile to Christianity, we will make it impossible for them to hold on to their hostility or their skepticism with just cause. We take away the skeptics' reservations and excuses for rejecting Jesus by being homophron, by living in harmony with one another. Does this make sense? Does it follow? You're tracking with me. Be on the same page with one another again, Peter would say, in your thinking about what really matters, what's really important. Be in common pursuit of the same goals in this thing called the life in Jesus. Be like-minded, united in your shared understanding of what pushes the cause of Jesus forward. Now, what the Holy Spirit is calling us to here through Peter He also does through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Look at what Paul writes to first century Christians, same same period of time as Peter's living. Look what he writes to the church in Philippi, Philippians chapter 1. We'll put it up on the screen for you. Here's what he says. And, And by the way, he's writing from a prison cell in Rome. And he says, whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Does that sound like Peter? That sounds like Peter to me. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in what? One spirit contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. Church family, what is that? That's harmony. That's homophron. And and in this very same letter, in chapter 2, verse 2, he says, make my joy complete by being, what? Like-minded, homophron, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. 
Be on the same page with one another in your thinking about what really matters, united in your desire to know Jesus and to make Him known. Everything else serves these two goals. Everything. Knowing Jesus and making Him known. That is what we are about here at IBC, right? Knowing Jesus better and making Him known to those who don't know Jesus. Harmony. Living in harmony with one another to the goal, to the end, that we know Jesus better and that those who don't know Jesus yet come to know him. Of course, living in harmony with one another is is not without its challenge, right? (laughs) It's tough. It can be really tough. Someone has observed that the church, because it is made up solely of sinful people, don't you like that? That's, that's all that's in this room right now is sinful people. Someone has observed because the church is made up solely of sinful people, it's not unlike a bunch of porcupines huddling together on a cold winter night. I don't know if you ever thought of yourself like that, but, but this person did. The colder it gets outside, The more they huddle for warmth, but the closer they get to one another, the more they hurt one another with their sharp quills. And Peter was mindful of this here. The cold winds of persecution were blowing, and these these weary believers needed to huddle together. They needed to, to be together. But because they were all so sinful, though they were saved, and prone to be prickly and self focused, They really needed to zero in on this one another. Live in harmony. Be united in mind. But it is not easy. We all know that if we've had much time in the life of Jesus' church, right? Just think how different we are in this room. Just think about this. We have in this room right now men and women. Now that's a huge difference, right? Right? Just that by itself. But now add to that, we have young and we have old. We have Republicans and we have Democrats. We have people with PhDs and we have people who haven't finished school. We have longtime residents of Idlewild, been here for many, many decades. We have people who just got their P.O. box this week. Met a couple this morning. Young family, just moved to the hill this week, just got their P.O. box. We have northerners, we have southerners. We have people who who love the USC Trojans and we have people who love the Oregon Ducks. And we'll pray for those people. But (laughs) we have people in this room this morning who are tone deaf and, and can't carry a tune. And we have other people who teach music and are beautiful singers. We have parents who homeschool and we have parents who public school. There's an incredible diversity in this room this morning. But this is the community of believers that we are. Many of us have little in common with some of the people that are sitting just an arm's length away from us. Little in common. And so what is it that will bind us together? What is it that will unite us in true harmony? It has to be something supernatural, doesn't it? It has to be Jesus. We find our unity through our shared love for Jesus and for his glory, sharing his values, sharing his cause, his love for the spiritually dying world that's all around us. We share all of that and we share a love for one another. 
If we're not, if it were not for Him, knowing Him and desiring to make Him known, if that was not the bonding agent for us in this room, we'd poke each other to death with all of our prickly quills. We would fly apart. It is Jesus who makes this thing happen called Idlewell Bible Church. Now, this unity does not mean total uniformity, right? Right? We're not all supposed to be cookie-cutter lookalikes of each other, right? That's not supposed to be the way it is. Live in harmony with one another doesn't mean we're cookie cutters of each other. It means that we have learned how to mutually cooperate with each other in the midst of incredible diversity. God has within these walls given us an incredible variety of gifts, talents, backgrounds, personalities, likes, dislikes, differences of opinion on a host of issues. Yet even though there is all of this diversity, all of this variety, we who are IBC work together in unity out of, what is it again? Our shared love for Jesus, our shared love for each other, our desire to know him and to make him known. That's it, is it not? That's what what allows us to live in harmony with one another. It's what Paul said a moment ago at the, at the end of verse 27 there. In one spirit contending is one man for what? The faith of the gospel. The faith of the good news. As brothers and sisters, we are governed by the higher purpose of Jesus so that our differences do not divide us. They actually enrich our shared life together. It's great that we're not all the same, right? Isn't that cool? That we're not all the same? And it'd be boring if we were all the same. We may differ on how things get done, but we are united on what is to be done and why it's done. It is for Jesus' sake, always for Jesus' sake. In 1994, three superstar tenors, and you got a few years under your belt, you would maybe well remember this, Three tenors, Jose Carreras, Placido Domingo, and, and Luciano Pavarotti, came together for what is today still considered one of the epic concerts of all time. They performed this concert together in Los Angeles. And just before the concert happened, there was a reporter, and as reporters do, they try to, to press those who are performing and, and get them to betray something of perhaps a competitive spirit. And so these were these three incredible singers were, were being pushed and pressed. Are, are, you, are you okay with these other two guys that you're with? Isn't there a competitive spirit amongst you? And it was Placido Domingo who said these words at that interview. He says, you have to put all of your concentration into the music. You can't be rivals and make beautiful music. We can't be rivals, brothers and sisters, and make the gospel beautiful. Can we? 
And that was Peter's point. We can't make it attractive. We can't make it beautiful. We can't make it impactful for our part if we are rivals. And Peter, if he was anything, was intensely practical because after saying, be on the same page with one another in your thinking, live in harmony with one another, he then offers up four quick virtues here in succession that reinforce and promote this harmony, this unity, this oneness that he's calling for. He says, finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. And immediately after that, he says what? Be sympathetic. Apparently, being sympathetic feeds into this thing called harmony. Sympathetic. It it, it comes from a Greek word that means to suffer with. Here, one of the ways we cultivate this this oneness, this unity that he's calling for is that we're ready to enter into and share the hurts of others. We join with them in their sorrow, with with their loss, with their pain, and, and also with their great joys and their celebrations. The Apostle Paul wrote the Roman church family, and this is what he said to them, Romans 12, 15. Rejoice with those who rejoice, and what? Mourn with those who mourn. Cry with them. Be sympathetic. Feel what they feel. Enter into their pain. You know, in my opinion, this is where life groups serve such a vital role in in promoting unity and harmony in the life of a church. The three who stood up this morning and shared with us basically said exactly that. There are things that just cannot happen relationally between us on a Sunday morning. It's just just too large. It's it's unwieldy. It's, It's the corporate context. But there are things that can happen relationally in that smaller, more intimate closeness of a life group. These groups are where you begin to develop relationships and you get into other people's lives and they get into your life and and your trust begins to grow and your love begins to grow for these persons and, and their battles and their fears and their needs become your battles and fears and needs and you, you sympathize with them. This is one anotherism on a very practical level. But it won't happen if you're not in a life group at least not in the way that it could happen if you were. So I would again appeal to you, if you've never been in a life group or you've been a while since you were in one, stop by that table, find a a, a group, join that group, and flesh some of this stuff out in that way. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. What's the next virtue? Love as brothers. Interesting. We started our study series 13 weeks ago with this one another. Love one another, right? Jesus said on the night before he died for us, John chapter 13, 34, 35, a new command I give you. What is the command? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this all men will know you are my disciples if you say it. Yes, love one another. Peter was present when those words were spoken. He heard them loud and clear. Because here in his letter, in he says love each other in 3.8, but it's not the only place where he says this. In chapter 1, verse 22, he says love one another deeply from the heart. 
chapter 2, verse 17. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers. And in chapter 4, verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. If we love Jesus, brothers and sisters, if we love Jesus and we are united with his mind, with his heart, we will be loving each other, right? We will. In fact, the Apostle John, who was also present with Peter on the night that that Jesus spoke these words about love, John will write in 1 John chapter 4, and he'll go so far as to say this. We love because what? He first loved us. Is that not a glorious, glorious truth? It's not like we had to do a bunch of stuff to earn God's love, somehow win his approval, and and he says, well, I guess, okay, I'll love you. I'll, I'll give you Jesus. No way. He loved us when we were at our worst. Then he goes on to say, he says, verse 20, if anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he is a what? He's a liar. For everyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. And he has given us this command, whoever loves God must also love his brother. Obviously, living in harmony will never happen in a church family if this is not happening. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic. Love as brothers. Then what? Be compassionate. This virtue feeds harmony literally by us being tender-hearted towards each other. That's what the word compassion means. Tender-hearted towards one another. It's, It's different than sympathy in that with sympathy you enter into the pain and you you share that with the one who is suffering. But here your heart aches for the things that God's heart aches for and, and Jesus' heart breaks for. One of the often repeated phrases in the Gospels about Jesus was that as he looked out over the crowds who came to him in, in, in huge numbers, he would look out over them and he would have what? Compassion for them. He ached for them. To know him. They were helpless, he said, like sheep without a shepherd. He had compassion. You know, in the cruel world of Peter's day, compassion was not seen as a virtue at all. In fact, it was a sign of weakness. There was no compassion in first century Roman Roman rule. These persecuted Christians needed to experience compassion from their brothers and sisters as they as they stood firm for Jesus, though they were being cut off from their families and, and, and evicted from their homes and they were being fired from their jobs and, and they were being hated by their longtime friends for, for loving Jesus. If we're to live in harmony with one another, we need this virtue. Compassionate and tender-hearted. It's just one more way that we make Jesus attractive to a hurting world. Finally, all of you live in harmony with one another. Be sympathetic, love as brothers, be compassionate and humble. Oh, finally an easy one. (laughs) No. Probably the hardest one of all, right, is this one right here. It is so easy to see why this virtue feeds living in harmony with one another. Humble in spirit, putting others before yourself is the idea behind this word. 
Paul wrote the Philippians again, and from his prison cell, he writes in chapter 2, verses 3 and 4, Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of each other. It's pretty tough to live in harmony with you if my goal is to beat you, to be first, or at least to get in front of you, right? It can be pretty tough for harmony to grow in that kind of a climate. Or if I felt that that's what you were doing to me, trying to, to put yourself first in front of me, not a lot of harmony is going to happen. Writing to the Roman church family, Paul writes this, twelve sixteen of Romans, Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Clearly, the Holy Spirit is telling us that humility feeds harmony. Jesus puts this virtue on such powerful display for us on the night before he was crucified. Remember that scene out of John 13 where Jesus puts on a towel and he washes the feet of his disciples. Do you remember this moment? The God of the universe, Messiah, washes the feet of Judas, his betrayer. And he washes the feet of Peter. That moment, I really believe, rocked Peter's world. He never really got over the thought that God washed his feet. In his early days with Jesus, Peter was loud, he was aggressive, he was strong-willed, he was, he was proud. Remember his boast on the eve of Jesus' death? Remember what he said? The very same night that Jesus washed his feet, he said, Jesus, everybody else in this room may cut and run, they may abandon you, but I will not abandon you. I'll be with you to the very end. And you remember what Jesus said to this proud heart? He said, Peter, before the night's over, you'll deny that you even know me three times. Sympathetic, loving, tender-hearted, and humble. If the Holy Spirit can transform a guy like Peter, into the person that he became. Do you suppose he could do that with you and me? That's encouraging, isn't it? That's good to know. And then keeping a firm grip on his purpose that he expressed back in chapter 2, verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. He adds this in verse 9. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing, because to this you were called, so that you may inherit a blessing. You know, if we stop and think about this for just a moment, living in harmony with one another demands that we be doing verse 9. Would you agree with that? That you can't do living in harmony with one another if you are not willing to do verse 9. Now, why would that be true? Well, that's true because we are all going to hurt each other sooner or later, right? It's just what happens in a, 
in a church family because we're sinful. We're, we're porcupines. We got quills. We poke each other. We're going to hurt each other. Hopefully we do it unintentionally, but sometimes we'll do it intentionally. And we will hurt each other. We will all do that. When that happens, not if it happens, but when it happens, we will have three choices sitting in front of us. Three courses of action that we could pursue. We can return evil for good. That's Satan's way, isn't it? I mean, he's, he's all about that. Brutally cruel, uncaring, unloving. Not a likely course that you would choose if you do know Jesus. Or we could choose to return good for good and what? Evil for evil. We could choose that. That's the human way. That's the way of our fallen world. An eye for an eye, a, a tooth for a tooth. You did that to me, so I will do this to you. That's the way it works in our world. How does that, how's that saying go? Revenge is a dish best served what? Cold? Yeah. That's how the world works. Or we can choose to return good for evil. And whose way is that? That's Jesus' way, isn't it? Earlier, as we noted, Peter in chapter 2 was urging the slaves to be the very best laborers, the very best workers that they could be, even if their masters treated them cruelly. If you flip back to chapter 2, find verse 21 with me for just a second. Peter says, If you do good and you suffer for it, remember this, verse 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We are all going to be hurt sooner or later by others in our church family. Sometimes intentionally. What are we going to do when that happens? What will we do? If we must get even, if we must have our revenge, if it's evil for evil, then we can kiss harmony goodbye. Agreed? There was a time when Peter was all about getting even. Remember the moment again, this is on the eve of the cross. Peter finds a sword. Remember this? He gets a sword. And it's the night before the cross and Jesus is in the garden and the soldiers are coming to arrest him. And, and Peter grabs a sword and because he's a fisherman and he's not a soldier, when the soldiers and stuff show up, what does he do? He tries to split the skull, doesn't he, of one of those, those people who come. But he's a fisherman. He's a lousy swordsman. What does he do? He cuts off the guy's ear, right? He's so bad at it. He cuts off the guy's ear. Do you remember what happens next? Jesus picks up the ear off the ground and puts it back on the, 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 the man's head and heals his ear. And then he turns to Peter and he says, Put that sword away. 
I could call down legions of angels in this moment. I don't need your sword. Do not repay evil with evil or insult with insult, but with blessing because to this you were called so that you may inherit a blessing. That's what Peter heard. That's what he's passed on to us. It's part of how harmony in our church life happens. I care more about us and our unity and our clear message to a fallen world that Jesus makes us one in mind and purpose. I care more about that than I care about some offense, some insult, some wrong done to me, even if I believe it was intentional. I forgive and I let God fight my cause for me. I return good for evil. Why? Because that's what Jesus asked. I become the blesser, and in so doing, I become the blessed. Because we know we're walking in step with the heart of Jesus. We're living out the gospel, knowing Jesus and making him known. We're living in harmony with one another. One anotherism. It's the phrase that we have chosen to capture this, this summer together. But brothers and sisters, I tell you with the most sincere heart, may it never be that one anotherism at Iowa Bible Church simply would be a catchy phrase or a novel little turn of words but may it be what we do, what we are, what we live out, one anotherism, so that the world will know that God sent Jesus to it. Amen? Let's pray together. Well, Heavenly Father, we... We come to the close of our series, not the close of the one another's, but the close of our series. And we just want to say thank you so much for your faithfulness to us throughout this summer season. And, oh, uh, my, my heart cried to you, Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, and Holy Spirit, is that one, another's, one anotherism truly would be the air we breathe. That it would be what we do here in this place living out you so conspicuously that the world cannot miss that you're here. Thank you for the challenges over these many weeks. May we not be just hearers of your word, but doers of it. For your glory and for the advance of your kingdom cause, we ask it in Jesus' strong name. And all God's people said, amen and amen. Let's stand together.